hello everybody, it's Martin Keenan here this week and uh, we're going to be talking about hygiene in low and middle income countries and my guest today is Assistant Professor Georgia Gon, who works in the Epidemiology Department at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Georgia started originally working out on maternal health but has uh, done an awful lot of work in the field of hygiene, water, safe water and infection prevention and has led a recent collaborative that has published a, a nice report so, Georgia, thanks very much for agreeing to chat to me about this. Thank you very much, Martin, for inviting me. It's really exciting uh, to have this space. So, can we just start up by you saying how this piece of work actually came about, and then we'll talk about the process and some time in future about the outcome. So, I guess the the easy answer is that we've been working for about a decade now with uh, cleaners in, in several countries, and initially we found the youth gap in training and uh, low low skill staff um, in across across several uh, facilities across many, many countries. And one of the pieces that we tried to do was to sort of consolidate the evidence around what um, in low resource settings with regards to environmental cleaning and possibly understand what interventions people have developed so far to try and address the issues at hand. And what we realize very quickly is that there is a bunch of systematic reviews that look at environmental cleaning available now in the literature, especially in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. But there is a lack of primary studies from low resource settings. So all these studies are mostly from high income countries, or when they are from middle income countries, they tend to be from quite well equipped hospitals. Yeah. So they don't really represent the situation for most hospitals, for most people in the world. So we initially embarked in a, in of course, another systematic review <laughs> to try and really uh, take out uh, the available evidence from low resource settings. And not surprisingly, we found very few studies that really focused uh, on, on low income settings. Again, poor quality studies or very small scale. Uh-huh. You know, they might include one, up to three facilities, pilot level studies. So no rigorous evaluations of the interventions. So we are, we're again at the sort of, we were back to square one in a way. We knew very well the research gaps. Yeah. But we didn't necessarily know what the priorities there were and how to move forward. So that's how yeah. the briefing came about. We're like, okay, so we know that there are gaps in the literature. We know that there's still a lot of primary studies to be done. So why don't we bring together people who know a lot about this field uh, from over the world and try and ask them what we think the priorities are. So we did it our homework and found out there's a lot <laughs> more. But we also, given that there's this so patchy the literature, uh, we also wanted to know directly from experts, you know, what are the priorities going ahead? You know, we're, especially if we're thinking about the short, medium term, we're not talking about 30, 50 years from now. We're talking about what should we concentrate on now to really make a difference uh, given that, again, we're not talking about rocket science, uh, right? We're talking about yeah, yeah. very implementation research-focused projects that, that try to make a difference. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? When you've got so many gaps, where do you go? You know, what do you pri- How do you prioritize? So, okay, talk to me about then how the collaborative got together and the process that that undertook. We were very lucky to be funded by um, the UK PHRST team, which is the Public Health Rapid Response Team which is ultimately funded by UKHSA, which is the a governmental agency in the UK. And we had a small pot of money, and that was really helpful. 
because of course to try and bring people together with some resources. And we it was mostly a collaboration between LSHTM, UK PHRST, and Stellenbosch University with uh, Anja Dromowski. And when the idea came about about bringing people together, we started in a very organic way, uh, not in- incredibly systematic, but to try and find uh, among our networks who we thought were the best suited people to build this collaborative. Mm-hmm. And of course, some of it is based on published papers and who are the authors of main papers in the field. So in that sense, was a little bit systematic. But some of it, because we know a lot of this stuff is not published yet and there are also people working in this field who don't necessarily part part of the academic world, we kind of branched it out and asked initially the experts we knew, who else should we invite in this collaborative? Who else needs to be part of this conversation? So it, it was really meant to not just be an academic exercise. It was yeah. also meant to include people from international organizations like uh, WHO. So we had representatives from WHO, IPCU, Infection Prevention Control Unit, the Antimicrobial Resistance Unit, the Infection Control Africa Network, uh, um, as well as CDC. So some of the big players, which you know go beyond the, the academic exercise per se. Okay. And the process of prioritization then? So the process of prioritization was interesting <laughs> because it was my first attempt to the <laughs> so my hand to prioritization and I found out that of course like everything you research is a world of its own <laughs> and uh, there are lots of ways in which to go down research prioritization we used some of the sort of more commonly standard methods um, in, in, in essence essentially um, what we did is that we started from all that literature review that I, I talked about initially uh, so really sharing uh, with the collaborative, the clean, the clean group, let's call it the clean group because that's what it is. Um, so we shared in group the systematic reviews we found and the findings from our systematic review that again found several gaps. And we also asked, you know, what else are we missing? Are there any key reviews or papers that we're missing here? And so we started from the literature. We're like, okay, uh-huh. this is the literature you know about. These are the gaps. Starting from here, given your expertise, please brainstorm about what you think are the research priorities in this area. And we kind of identified three, four themes that kind of helped us structuring our ideas. And these were our health system strengthening, because of course, if you really want to implement environmental cleaning at the hospital level, you need to think about all the stakeholders that are involved in that process. So it's not just the cleaner or the orderly or the nurse assistant making the action of surface cleanliness. Yeah. We're talking about, uh, you know, making sure there is a budget line there, making sure that there is accountability, making sure that there are policies in place, uh, and making sure someone manages all the process and at all levels of the health system. So there is a health, sy- health system strengthening kind of component. Uh, there is an innovation theme. But of course, we know that, again, we're not talking about necessarily extreme new technology, but there are some things that we still don't know about. Like, you know, is it sufficient for low-touch surfaces to to be using detergent rather than detergent and, and disinfectants? You know, small things like that that kind of fall mm-hmm. into underneath an innovation field. And we also identified a theme around behavior change. Yeah. Because again, when you have several stakeholders um, well, when you want several people to do several actions, I mean, essentially you're talking about behavior change. And this is something that is particularly to my heart because 
I do a lot of uh, behavioral sciences. And of course, what is the most effective way of training someone that usually comes from a low literacy background or socioeconomic condition? Uh, they tend to be women in, in low resource settings. So how can we develop behavior change techniques that support those specific groups to learn and sustain their behavior better in the long term. I mean, could I just yeah. draw you there? I mean, di different cultures, of course, would need different techniques. So uh, it, it's very difficult then to, to develop a technique that you'd be able to use in all low and middle income countries, all low income countries, wouldn't it? I mean, what's the challenge there? Because that's very interesting. So I would I would challenge that a little bit. So in, in the behavior change world, you would you would distinguish between form and function. And without okay. getting too much the details of that, you know, I can say the function would be, I know that there needs to be education. How the form of that education might take place differently in different right. places. Okay. And there are some characteristics that you can that can help you decide, okay, here I need a theater play versus a poster to convey exactly the same piece of information. Mm -hmm. You know, there are ways that can help you to gather the right information to know if one form would be more feasible than another is according to your knowledge of the context. But essentially, the behavior change technique, which is improving knowledge through education, is the same. Okay. So it's, but it's essential, as you say. So I think it's really good that you brought that point up that those things that need to be context contextually grounded and, and needs to be thought about, you need to think about your target audience. Uh, Wherever yeah. you are, right, okay. it, yeah, essential okay. thing. It's in fact the recommendation of the briefing. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, now we have a number of different priorities. I think twelve in total. Yes. How do you prioritize within the priorities? Because they, there's still a lot of gaps there, and there's going to be limited funding. Unfortunately, as you say, most of the money that goes into this sort of research is in high-income countries where probably the challenges are somewhat different anyway, and certainly the resources are very different. I mean, it, it, can we go forward and think, okay, within the 12, there's still a hierarchy because it, it, it will cover all the gaps, but there's still only going to be a limited pot of money, isn't there? Yeah, no, I think that's usually how people think about it. I think that there is a limited pot of money. Um, I think, again, I would like to challenge that a little bit in the sense that I think some groups of research and uh, implementation have been incredibly creative um, at securing funding, right? So I think IPC is not there yet. I think it's there are other sort of research areas that are much more creative than us at securing funding. So I think that pot can be stretched a little bit more. Um, and and personally, I don't think I can I can make that call. You know what is more important between the the twelve that we identified. I would say that. For most of them, when I look at them, like it, it's hard to really think about something as complex as an environmental cleaning program and the healthcare level without thinking across these domains. So yeah. I, I don't know if I could say, you know, this is more urgent than this. I think yeah. we are in a state where funders are interested in different things. And I think we should leverage that, you yeah. know. So, you know, if someone is interested in innovation, bring them the innovation question. If someone is interested in behavior change, bring them behavior change questions. So I think it's it's more about being creative with the way we sell those and, and make sure we, we get funded for those. I think it's going to be interesting also, going back to your comment about context, because perhaps the local stakeholders at the political level are also interested in different things. So mm. why, don't, why don't we leverage that? 
if someone is yeah. more interested in a certain domain, we should support them in trying to do that because they have ownership of that. I suppose it would also depend on the on the actual problem they have in a particular area. If there's something that they then think, well, actually, this is one area that probably we should focus on, like our behavior change or our use of biocides or whatever. Um, so, it, you know, the piece of research may well fit the local context anyway. But it's, I mean, you, you said how complex cleaning is. I think people think cleaning is very easy. And that's one thing that jumps out very nicely from the 12 priorities and the things that we really just don't know about. And to be honest, I I don't think this necessarily applies to low and middle income countries either. I mean, the DPCA has been doing a nice piece of work with a healthcare hygiene assessment framework showing that actually in very high income countries, there's still significant gaps in, in the, the cleaning setup. But uh, I mean, you, you talked about systems though very early on and- mm. How do you think we can actually promote? Have you got any ideas of how we can promote this as a something that a healthcare system ought to invest in? Because my problem has always been if you don't have any data to convince them they have a problem, they're not going to do very much. And in you know we don't have great data in high income countries. We have reasonable data in some countries, much better than others. Middle income countries, not so much. Low income countries, they'll have no data. So how do we create a problem that somebody needs to solve? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, Martin. I think that's that's a big issue. Uh, and I think in most lawyers or settings, we're dealing with situations where you don't have a you don't have a system of monitoring healthcare, so infections. Yeah. You don't have a system monitoring environmental microbiological samples in any way. Um, there's no, I mean, there is not even routine blood culture of any sort for patients. So, um, how do you make the case that this is a cost-effective Absolutely. And, yeah. And I think then that's where research comes in, right? Yeah. You, limitation research, you, you do a good study to show that it is cost effective. And then you can extrapolate and say, okay, we cannot do the, the same study in every single facility. But look, we've done this study in, in a setting and it's a strong study design. This is applicable to your setting for X, Y, and Z reasons yeah. uh, because you have similar profile. And um, so I think that's how we can leverage research to, to show that cost effectiveness somewhere and bring it to other places. I think the other one, the, the other thing that um, we've tried a little bit is to use a marginal sampling because it's much cheaper compared to, let's say, trying to set up a new system of measuring healthcare associated sure. infection. Yeah. There are now more and more technologies that are relatively cheap, both to generate, but also to implement in context where the lab capacity is limited. Uh, like we've used deep slides a lot, uh, <laughs> for which are able to to deploy on surfaces, but also to uh, read from a lab perspective after incubation. So I think I, I would try and use those sort of very visual, yeah. impactful way of showing That's people. What I was because thinking. I mean, no one wants to no one wants to go to a facility that where they know there is high level of contamination, mm. right? Like sit or lie in a bed for days. Um, and then I think you can exploit those data, linking it to very personal stories. I mean, we humans are very persuaded by stories. So I think you, you could link it to, uh, I don't know, a politician's uh, cousin or, you know, their their wife or something. And I think that would really, really strike. Uh, yeah, stories, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Again, I, I don't think there is a magic... Uh, there is no magic wound for that. It's kind of just 
yeah, trying to see what what incentivize people in that in that specific context. Unfortunately, I've never worked in countries like this. So, would people associate visible uncleanliness with hygiene and infection in the same way that in a high income country, if you walked into a hospital and there was filth all over the floor, people would be immediately saying, "I'm not going in here." Is that linked and therefore the necessity to make the hospital at least look clean to start with before you start moving down another line? Or do you think people just accept that that as the norm and uh, wouldn't necessarily be concerned about something that looks physically unclean in that area? Yeah, I think the the one experience I have with that is um, actually the, the power of images in maternity wards. Uh, <laughs> because actually we found out... Uh, and, and there are now sort of nationally scale surveys that say specifically the hygiene is one of the, the women going into the liver and facility care about. So it is part of their perception. It's part of something they care about when they choose whether to stay home to delivery or to go to a facility. But in the more, in the more small scale studies we've done, uh, we've actually used a lot of image evidence uh, to catalyze change in a facility. For example, in India, Bangladesh, we use participatory photography essentially, to take their own pictures of their environment and discuss with them what they thought the environment should look like. Uh, and I think that's very empowering. And those pictures then went all the way up to different stakeholders in the healthcare system. And, you know, I've got in my files plenty of bad pictures, let's put it that way, bad pictures okay. of, of material yeah, to well, work. We've all got those. <laughs> I, wouldn't not, even not. Walk in, <laughs> I wouldn't even want to walk into these places. Okay. So I think you can use effectively visual evidence for, evidence for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, also when we worked with the Minister of Health of Zanzibar across 37 maternity units, that was one of the most powerful things they took away from our stakeholders' workshop, much more than all the data that we showed them was the pictures that we showed them. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I also know because we've tried to do a comparison between our microbiology data and the pictures and in reality, there is actually very little, how can you say, match uh, between the two. So I think I would always use it carefully. Uh, yes, okay. And- I mean, is there, a, is there a frustration amongst cleaning staff from your work that they can't do as good a job as they would want to do? Yeah. Or, you know, because certainly that's been my experience of cleaning staff here in the UK. I go to give them a lecture I spend the first 20 minutes telling me, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that. So they really do want to do a good job. Is that, is there, is that a similar experience that you've had with cleaning staff? Are there some frustration that they aren't able to do better than they can with what they have, but they don't have the power to be able to ask for a, um, equipment or whatever they need, what resource they need? Yeah, I think definitely the lack of resources in many of these, in many of these settings is um, really, really a, a challenge for cleaners. They just don't have enough mops. They don't have enough cloth. You know, they have to use the same cloth, and and yeah. they're, they're, it's all uh, reusable equipment. So not only they have to spend a huge amount of time cleaning, but they also have to spend a huge amount um, repurposing these equipment for the next day. Yeah. And, and um, I think that's that's definitely a source of frustration. I think another feeling that I come across a lot, but that's because of the different context is that these cleaners often, when we first work with them, they've never received formal training, never. Right. So there you, the, the, the standard thing that I hear is, oh, you know, we clean the hospital, like we clean our own home. So there is no sense of this is a specific place where you clean a certain way with a certain technique. And 
the amount of good feedback that we got from implementing, uh, probably you came across the, the latest WHO training for low resource settings um, yeah. around the meaning, which kind of stems from the Teach Clean um, training manual that the Softbox collaborative team developed. So I was lucky enough to kind of evaluate that training and, and now it's great that WHO took it over. But essentially, it's amazing because many of the countries where we piloted this training, you know, the feedback was consistently, they were so happy. First, finally be engaged in an activity of any sort in terms of formal training. And first of all, to learn actually how to do their job properly. Yeah. So actually an increasing satisfaction from being able to perform. But I'll, and at the same time, facing the problem of, well, actually your workload goes up a huge amount yeah. because do <laughs> things properly and yeah. you have the same amount of hours you're paid for as yeah. before the training. So in that sense, that's where the frustration came from again. So the, the happiness about being taught and being skilled finally with, you know, I still have four hours in my day to do all these things and I'll, the, the time I take to actually do a proper technique is double than what I did before. Yeah. So that's sort yeah. of <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, when you've done a study like that, were you able then to convince the healthcare system that they actually need to maintain that training, that they're going to get a positive benefit out of it? Or did they just see it as a piece of research and that's really nothing to do with us going forward? I think that changed country by country. Yeah. So really depending on the context. Like, for example, when it works in Tanzania, they had a quality improvement system, the five S's, if I'm not wrong, one of which was surface. So they already had it in their realm, even though there was no formal training on the ground. So it was easier for some of these things to be part of the continued quality improvement system. There are other countries where you're starting from scratch. There is, there is nothing around cleaning. Like, for example, we had an incredible experience now in Cambodia across 13 of their major referral hospitals across the country. And they didn't have anything in their policies around environmental cleaning, anything consistent. Mm -hmm. um, so they're actually going to use the WHO environmental clean training to be part now of the, of the national infection prevention control policy. But that, took, you know, this is like a three and a half years project. So, yeah, you know, because uh, I mean, healthcare managers may want to allow time for cleaning, but they've got to feel they need to do it in order to be able to create the time, don't they? And then, you know, you've got to backfill yes. somebody while they're taking time off to clean. So I was just wondering about, did the research convince them that actually they need to do it rather than just wanting to do it? Yeah, I think, I think I'm not sure about that, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, mm. I think I hear more of the practical struggles with, you know, I don't have room in my budget. I yeah. can't hire more people. Lots of issues with contracted out services. So okay. for in the situation of Cambodia, you will have some, some local cleaners that are hired locally. They're not part of the staff members. They have four hours in a day. Two, three cleaners for 60 beds. I mean, how, what are you going to like? Yeah. A realistic, how can you make a realistic cleaning schedule to match that human resources? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where the manager kind of, and the champions that we selected to kind of support that process are stuck because they have to be like, how much can I ask for my staff? So I'm worried that they're going to quit. And, yeah. and that's a yeah, yeah. concern. So I'm to kind of work at all levels until all levels kind of sing a bit like a Swiss. Swiss uh, cheese, you know. Swiss cheese, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the hill, all the walls need to line up uh, for it to kind yeah. of become easy. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, thanks very much, Georgia. It's been fascinating. We'll, we'll put a link to the full report on the, uh, the podcast site. And I know you've got publications that are likely to come out from this in the not too distant future. But uh, I think it makes a fascinating read, to be honest. And it just I just wonder where to start, really. But as you say, different people will pick off different areas, perhaps, and pick off the local priorities. So thank you very much for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Martin, for giving me this opportunity. Bye, everybody. 